brother Peter here to bless getting started. He told me the first week I couldn't start right on time because people didn't show up, and I found that to be somewhat true. In fact, I'm looking around for some that I know will be here and aren't here, so I'm going to start anyway. So good morning. And Phil, before we get on the tape, before we get on the tape, Phil, this is not about you. I know you haven't been here the last couple of weeks. I know, but this is not about you. Your name will come up, as those who have been here know, but this is not about you. <laughs> we are really, this morning, getting into the heart of this little letter. And... Um, it is, uh, again, a vivid illustration of the application of the love that we are called to have for one another <clears throat> in a practical, but, as I have said before, supernatural way. Because the kinds of actions that are being urged here and we can have pretty good assurance have been followed here were supernatural actions, not what no people normally do. I want to start with the definition, I think it's in your notes, the definition of a word manumission. How many of you are familiar with that word, manumission, before you read the, okay. Manumission means the act or process of manumitting, especially formal emancipation from slavery. And a lot of people come to this little letter, and we'll talk about this as we go on, be, hearing something about it. It's interesting, I have a, 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 someone in my office who is not a believer and disclaims the claim of claims of Christ, but really likes this little letter. I started having conversation with this person, and I was amazed. I knew quite a bit about it, but had a little bit of a slanted view of it, but still knew about this letter, even though it's only 25 verses out of a Bible. That How many verses are in the Bible? I don't know. Somebody here may have that trivia. Do you think the thought of asking for Musa's freedom from slavery ever crossed Paul's mind. Now we can have differences of opinion on the answer to that question, but slavery at that time in Roman first century Roman the first century Roman Empire was not the slavery we're accustomed to reading about that has so much influenced our country. It wasn't exactly like that, but there were a lot of similarities. Slaves were property, same as the American experience of slavery. Slavery, for some at that time, might have been the difference between starvation and eating. The implications of this letter would be fatal to the idea of slavery, eventually. And this little letter was one of the motivators for a man named William Wilberforce, who spent a good deal of his life 49 years fighting slavery in England. But Paul was not, as we'll see, advocating a revolution over the issues of slavery. Here is, however, some of the attitudes, and I listed them in your notes, that we can see 
that are expressed in this little letter we call Philemon. We can see Paul's character in Christ. We can see Paul's sensitivity about what is right. We can see that God is above all and behind all that is going on here. We can see God's principles at work in everyday mundane business affairs. We can see Paul's redeemed heart in this little letter and what our heart should be about, seeing the lowest members of society brought to a saving knowledge of Christ and into a community of brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can see a clear picture of the gospel story in Paul's advocacy for a brother's reconciliation to another brother. Let's read. Verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Verse 16, just an equally valid translation would be, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. Heavenly Father, give us insight by the Holy Spirit to see what you're saying to us for today. Because this word is empty and void if it doesn't impact us. But we know it does. For it was given to us for the purpose of impacting and changing us. May it have that effect, please. In Jesus' name. I want you to imagine the tension that would have increased as Paul read through verses 1 through 7, and then verses 8 and 9. I like to, with Scripture when I can, I like to think as though I was there. And I've encouraged you to find yourself in this story. The first time this letter was read by Phil, he would have read through verses 1 through 7. He was presented a letter. Though, you know, I don't know if it was in an envelope. I don't know. But he was given a letter, and he began reading. He read through verses 1 through 7, and then 8 and 9. So with that background, I want you to put yourself in that frame of mind, reading this for the first time, if you are Phil. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Verses 8 and 9 begin with the word accordingly, or in, I think in the NIV it begins with therefore. And, Paul, and then Paul establishes his authority by telling Phil that he will not invoke his authority. He, he sort of 
He establishes his authority, but he says, I'm not going to invoke my authority. I am an apostle, but I'm not commanding you to do this, what he's about to ask him to do. Now, the ten- I don't know if you can feel it. I hope you can put yourself in the position, the tension building, as this letter is written. You know, if you're Phil and you're worldly wise, you realize you're being set up for something. Something's coming. The tension is building, and now Paul says, I'm not, I'm not ordering you as an apostle. I'm an old man, and I'm in prison. But I appeal to you. And that word accordingly, or therefore, points back to verse 7. In other words, in light of your refreshing the saints in the past, accordingly, I appeal to you. Because of the love that has been emphasized, and for which you, Phil, have been commended. Genuinely commended and correctly commended. Paul appeals to Phil to do something that is, and catch this word there, required. What required Phil to do something? Again, feel the tension as Paul leads up to verse 10. And remember, you've read, you have, I think many of you here at least, I hope you have, read through this letter several times by now. It doesn't take long. But Phil had to read it for the first time when it was the first time, when it was first delivered. Paul, not as apostle, but as an old man, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, appeals to Phil. And again, what required Phil to do something? The easy answer, after all we have learned, must be described as love and relationships, or loving relationships, exemplified by Christ Jesus' example in his purchase of forgiveness and his work at the cross to reconcile his father, now our father, to his brothers and sisters. And those words are throughout the letter up till now. You know that. In first century terms, Paul was an old man. His 60 years, which he was probably about 60 years old when this was written, had been less than easy from the time that the Lord commanded him, on, on the, confronted him and commanded him or told him who he was on the road to Damascus. Uh, Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6, 4 and 5. As servants of God, we, and he's talking about himself, commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. This had been a hard 60 years for our brother Paul. So Paul the prisoner, the old man, instead of speaking in terms of power and authority, speaks from a position of dependence and weakness, relying on the love in Phil's heart because of Christ to provide the necessary motive and impetus that will enable him and empower him to do what love requires. We might call this the duty of love. And verse 10 brings the tension to a climax. After carefully preparing Phil's heart, Paul's little letter finally comes to its purpose. His appeal is for his child. He says, my child. A child born to Paul in prison while Paul was in chains. The child was none other than our runaway slave, Moose. Wow, what a shock it must have been for Phil 
to read this for the very first time. As I said in our first week, I have a mental image of Moose hiding around the corner of the building when Tychicus first handed this letter to Paul. I don't know, that's speculation, but whether Moose was hiding around the corner or down the street or standing there beside Phil, this appeal must have been quite a shock to Phil. In fact, it just occurred to me, if he was standing next to, next to Tychicus when the letter was being read for the first time by Phil, Phil might have in his righteous indignation being said, ha, ah, somebody caught him and brought him back. All of the introductory remarks, verses 1 through 9, were leading up to the mention of the name of, Phil's, of Paul's child, our brother, we have nicknamed Moose. Onesimus is Paul's child. Yes, Phil knew that Moose was not physically Paul's child, and, but no doubt he knew that it was Paul's way of describing brothers and sisters who came to conversion through his preaching of Christ. Uh, in, in Corinthians again Paul writes to the Corinthians chapter 4 1 Corinthians 4:15 For though you have ha for though you have countless guides in Christ you do not have many fathers for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel In the Greek text and I didn't check this with Evan but I'm read several commentaries that told me this so you can check with him and tell me if I'm if they were wrong the name of our perpetrator, remember the perpetrator? Moose, Onesimus, Paul's child in the Lord, does not come in this verse in the Greek until the very end of the sentence. I appeal, to, it would read this way, it's a little awkward in English, but I appeal to you for my child, whose father I became in my imprisonment, Onesimus. Now, Paul, again, Phil, reading this for the first time. Gets to verse 10. Putting yourself in Phil's place with all this buildup, you know your spiritual father is leading up to something. You know he's going to ask you for something. And now here it is. He's asking Phil for something for Moose, that scoundrel who stole from you, deserted the household by running away. And here Paul refers to Moose as his child. Again, what do you think was Phil's first reaction? If you have found yourself to be Phil in this story, maybe you've been the victim. Maybe you've been the person stolen from. If that's where you find yourself in this story. And by the way, you will if you haven't. What will you do when you are Phil in this story? the real question. I can imagine, knowing myself, that Phil had strong feelings at first. I certainly think that at least Phil had mixed feelings about what Paul was appealing to him to do. And I do think that I can envision Phil quickly looking around the room to see if his unprofitable servant, Moose, was in view. If he wasn't standing right next to Tychicus, I can imagine. Where is he? Verse 11 consists of a parenthetical aside that refers, it's a wordplay, a play on words, that refers to Moose's transformation from a servant who was useless to a servant who is now useful both to Paul and to Phil. And Paul is using a play on words here because Moose's name, Onesimus, in the Greek meant useful or profitable. 
This wordplay provides a clear contrast between Musa's past and his present status as a true brother in Christ. And there are really two levels to Paul's comment about Moose here. First, as it relates to God's plan, any unconverted person, even you, as successful as you may have been before conversion, any unconverted person is unprofitable, is useless in God's kingdom. That ought to be humbling. Even though each person is created in the image of God, that person is dead in their trespasses and sins. Even if that dead person does his work diligently, he or she is unprofitable for God's purposes. They're not living out the very purpose of their being, which is to reflect God's glory in the earth. But on another level, Moose had not, in Phil's past experiences with him, done his work very well at all. And so he had been doubly unprofitable and useless. And what Paul is telling Phil with some punny humor, based on the very meaning of Moose's name, that Moose would now live up to his name in both ways. He will be useful to you. He'll be profitable to you. Paul didn't condone useless, unprofitable servants. In fact, Paul clearly taught, even in the letter to Phil's church, the letter to the Colossians, that the duty of a servant was to be a good servant. I think I put this passage in your notes. Uh, Colossians 3, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. True Christianity should not condone hopeless cases and allow them to remain useless because Jesus Christ came to cause his brothers and sisters to increasingly reflect his image, and he certainly was not unprofitable. Oh, yes, we're all works in progress. I understand that. But by the same token, we are works in progress. There is change, and the change is for the good. Pastor Spurgeon, in his sermon about one verse in this little letter, in a sermon entitled The Story of a Runaway Slave, put it this way. He first spoke specifically of Onesimus, and then he spoke generally of the effect of the genuine conversion of sinners. Spurgeon preached, The grace of God was conspicuous in the character which it wrought in Onesimus upon his conversion, for he appears to be helpful, useful, and profitable. And then generally, Spurgeon spoke of the effect of conversion. He said, the servant may be apt to loiter, be laid up of a morning, very slovenly, fond of gossip at the door, but if she is truly converted, all that kind of thing ends. She is conscientious and tends to her duty as she ought. Christ does make a difference in our lives. Conversion does change our usefulness, both in God's plan and here on earth, being about what we're what we're about. Verse 12, Paul makes clear to Phil what Moose meant to him by saying it in very poignant terms. 
I'm sending you my very heart. How much did Paul care for Moose? You can see the answer right here. Moose had become a very part of Paul. Do we get that? Do we get that about each other? We are very part of one another. Our relationships in Christ recognize the truth of the Word of God that we really are in this life, in Christ, together, because of Christ, no more, no less. That does not, doesn't mean that Paul saw Moose as perfected. No, it meant he was thankful for who Moose was in Christ, his very own brother. Moose had become part of Paul, and this adds strength to Paul's appeal to Phil that will appear later in this little letter, that Phil should consider Moose a very part of himself. This understanding of our relationships with other brothers and sisters simply tells the truth of our life together. We may not live like it. We may sometimes deny it by the way we act, but this is the truth. I hope I'm, com I hope I'm communicating that. Perfect, no. But surely, brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm afraid very often when we see weakness or imperfection in each other, we tend to, nah, it may have been a, they may have been the off scouring of some distant relative, not brother or sister. The truth is, this is the truth, no more, no less, we're in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. Verses four, 13 and 14 bring us back to the options we talked about I think, um, I think the first week. The options that the brothers in our story face, three brothers, Paul, Phil, Moose, they had options. Paul's supernatural choice of his options was to urge Moose to go back, even though Moose was his very heart and very useful to Paul in the ministry. Moose's supernatural choice was to go back to Phil and to take the risk that Phil would not forgive or would even prosecute him for theft or would treat him harshly, not as a brother. And Phil was faced with his own supernatural choice. Would he respond favorably to Paul's appeal to love, restoration, reconciliation, and forgiveness, treating Moose as his brother or not? And if you have found yourself in this story, you're going to face some options and choices for how you behave toward that person. This is about relationships. And in making his appeal to Phil, Paul sets up contrast here. First, we have Paul's own desire that he expresses to keep Moose with him, to serve with him on Phil's behalf in the gospel. In contrast, we have Paul's preference to do nothing without Phil's consent. Paul's preference and his decision then was to do what is right and appropriate to send Moose back to Phil to serve Phil. Now, despite Paul's own desire, he's willing to give up his rights in order to honor, in honor of Phil's own judgment. But Paul is hoping that Phil will give up his own rights to act in accordance with the new reality that exists in Christ. Paul's decision was to let Phil act voluntarily to do the right thing. 
this is a hard thing for parents. I, it just, that just occurred to me. It's not in my notes. This is a hard thing for parents to do, to let a child, to try to encourage. Sometimes we have to exert authority. But when, as often as possible, to let a child have the decision to do the right thing after much and careful training and encouragement. That's free. Hard lesson learned. This last part of Paul's argument for love is just as careful and well thought out as it has been beginning in verse 1. Charles Haddon Spurgeon in his sermon about the runaway slave describes Paul's care in writing this letter like this. And I don't think he overstates it. In fact, I want to emphasize this because it applies to us. Spurgeon preached the letter, speaking of this letter, shows long thinking. Long thinking. Not spur of the moment thought. Not reflex reaction. Long thinking. Since every word is well selected, albeit that the Holy Spirit dictated inspiration does not prevent a man's exercising thought and care in what he writes. Every word is chosen for a purpose. If he had been pleading for himself, he could not have pleaded more earnestly or wisely. I'm afraid, speaking for myself first, we are not nearly so careful in our communications when we are put in the position of Paul as, as a reconciler as Paul was. God often calls us to be a means whereby God reconciles believers to one another. And when we are in this position, are we this careful? No doubt Paul wrote this letter in prayer. It's full of prayer. It, it, a big part of it is prayer. But before writing, I do not think for a moment Paul did not use the renewed mind God had given him to be careful and wise. And this is a lesson for us. This little illustration of Christian community is written, I've said this I think every week and I'll say it now, is written for our instruction, our reproof, our correction, and our training in righteousness. Part of what we are to learn is that we must not be lazy in God's work or in the deeds of righteousness we are given to do works God has prepared in advance for us to do we're not to be lazy in doing those works our diligence to think and to carefully consider God's revealed purposes is what God calls us to do in our communications in this life together and that's hard for some of us who love to pop off the first thing that comes into our mind and very often it's not wise. And very often it's not fruitful. I've found that to be so in my own experience. Paul genuinely found Moose profitable to him in the ministry. And Paul would have loved to keep Moose with him, but not without Phil's blessing. Paul is asking Phil to act supernaturally in love, but not by a command based on his apostolic authority. This is also how God treats us. You thought about that? We are blessed when we are obedient, but real obedience is hard obedience, not legal obedience. 
our heart obedience will be joyful obedience to do the loving thing, take the loving action. Because of Christ in us and our relationship with God based on his love for us demonstrated at the cross. David Powell in his commentary on Philemon puts it this way. It is no accident that Paul discusses this contrast between forced and voluntary in a letter that deals with the proper treatment of a slave. In setting up an example for Philemon, Paul has decided to grant him the freedom to act according to his own will in light of their partnership in Christ and the new reality found in Christ. As he does so, Philemon should similarly allow Onesimus to respond to the call to service according to his own will and not according to the compulsion imposed on him by one who insists on his status as a slave. Paul is living out a model that Philemon is to follow. And verse 15 is reminiscent of Genesis 45, 1 through 9. I, I won't read it. I think it's in your notes, but you know the story <laughs> of Joseph and his brothers recorded in Genesis 45. Basically, Joseph tells them when they realize they're dealing with the brother they sold into slavery. God did this, Joseph tells them. <laughs> this was done by God. You had one purpose, but God had another. This little story of Philemon is very reminiscent of that. Instead of directing Phil's attention to the desertion of Moose, Paul's statement in verse 15, let me read it. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while. Notice he doesn't say, this isn't why he read this. This is why he ran away and stole from you. He says, this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you. Do you see another hand <laughs> being described here? Instead of, Paul's statement in verse 15 suggests God has overruled Moose's evil actions for good. Aren't we glad that God does this? <laughs> Certainly Joseph's brothers and Isaac were glad that God overruled evil for good. God's overruling actions were ultimately for God's glory and Phil's good. The runaway ran, but God pursued and used his running to bring Moose to the means of his conversion so he could be restored to Phil as a person far more valuable than the runaway. This is God's sovereign work. How unlike us God is. <laughs> we always see the disaster. We see the theft. We see the runaway. We see the wrong that was done. God sees his purposes fulfilled. It was just a coincidence that he showed up in Paul's household where Paul was chained to a Roman soldier. Right? Just coincidence, huh? Yeah, some coincidence. God's purpose in Moose running away was very different than Moose's purpose, but God's purpose prevails, as it always does. God's purpose was to restore Moose to Phil in a new and far better relationship, a relationship that even death could not dissolve. Spurgeon put the matter this way. Onesimus had no right to rob his master and run away. 
But God was pleased to make use of that crime for his conversion. It brought him to Rome and so brought him where Paul was preaching and thus it brought him to Christ and to his right mind. If God overrules sin for good as he sometimes does, is it, is, it is nonetheless sin. Onesimus is not excused then for having embezzled his master's goods nor for having left him without right. He is still a transgressor, but God's grace is glorified. When Paul tells Phil that this has happened, that Phil may have moved back forever, he's not talking about permanent slavery. He's looking far further than that. Paul is writing of a relationship far longer lasting than this life. Paul and Moose are brothers forever in Christ. The last verse in our little section today, verse 16, tells us that Moose is still a slave. He was still a slave by status, but he could no longer be treated like a slave by Phil if Phil follows the law of love because in reality, Moose was far more than a slave. He was a brother. Phil and Moose in reality now had a relationship far different than a master-slave relationship. Their relationship was on a totally different plane. Phil and Moose were now one in Christ, joint heirs in the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 24, Colossians 3, 11. Let's read these. First, 1 Corinthians 7, 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Just so you're not confused, this is primarily speaking of a situation in which people voluntarily gave up their freedom in order to have a place to live and food to eat in exchange for their work. That's the kind of bond servant or slave being talked about here in this passage. And then in Colossians 3.11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, I want us to notice, and these passages of Scripture do not do away with the institution of slavery. They really are addressed to a very different and higher plane of human relationships. Moose, the grace of God, has made Moose the slave a beloved brother. Moose is especially loved by Paul as a partner in the ministry and as a son. But how much more should this be true of Phil, since Moose belonged to him in the double sense of both being his slave and his brother? In the flesh, Phil had the brother for a slave. In the Lord, Phil had the slave for a brother. We don't know all of the reasons God orchestrates our lives in certain ways, but we certainly don't know what good some evil can be turned evil situation can be turned into because God is control despite the fact that we don't know those things we need to learn that we should never give up or despair in evil situations even when we created them God changes people and circumstances as he will but always for his glory and our good Learning to live in the reality of who we are in Christ is always a profound testimony 
to those who see us trusting God no matter what. Let me illustrate this truth with, um, I can't get away from Brother Dietrich. This is a testimony about him, Dietrich Bonhoeffer the day before he was hanged. I think it was April 9, 1945, as told by an English officer who was in the same prison with him. Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the loop. Now, I want you to think about this. This is in prison, in a very despicable prison in Nazi Germany. One of the prisons that Bonhoeffer had been in had been bombed and he was covered with rubble as were most of the men. Some of them died in the, in the bombing. And now he was in Flossenburg, a very difficult prison situation, very little to eat. I just want you to, I want you to get the context of this statement about him. Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident and profound gratitude for the facts that he was alive. He was one of the very few persons I have ever met for whom God was real and always near. On Sunday, April 8, 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and spoke to us in a way that went to the heart of us, all of us. He found just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment, the thoughts and the resolutions it had brought us. He had hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered. They said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. That had only one meaning for all prisoners, the gallows. We said goodbye to him. He took me aside. This is the end, but for me it is the beginning of life. The next day was hanged. More than a slave. More than a slave. We started out looking at this passage by considering the term manumission. And some may have taken this little letter and what Paul is saying in our text today as a call to abolish slavery. But before we judge Paul for not being strong enough in his judgment about slavery, we need to see two truths. First, for Paul, the relationship, brothers in Christ, is far more significant than the social and political construct of slavery. Being in Christ transforms society far more significantly than abolition of physical slavery by political emancipation. Second, within the social reality of the first century Roman world, a simple call to manumission without changes to the entire Roman social and political system would simply be considered as an idealistic move that would reduce Phil's responsibilities to Moose without increasing Moose's security or well-being. That would have divorced Moose from the protection and provision of Phil's household. Paul's focus here is to declare to Phil in no uncertain terms that Moose is a beloved brother, a status far more significant than his servanthood. Moose is now a full member of the household of God and of Phil's household as a result. Just have a few minutes for us to think about the application, a little bit more about the application of this scripture. More than manumission. <clears throat> The issues of slavery in the experience of the United States have dominated the consciousness of our culture in one way or another for more than the last 200 years at least. Slavery in the United States was a terrible distortion of God's purposes for his creation of mankind. 
and has left us a tragic legacy. As a result, increasingly, those who have studied this little letter from Paul to Phil about Moose have understandably focused on trying to determine Paul's precise position about the manumission of our brother Moose. And to the extent that this would be the focus of our little study, we might be disappointed with what this text teaches us. This kind, you know, when we're disappointed with scripture, not just on this issue, but on some other issues as well, this kind of disappointment often occurs when we come to scripture to try to support our own private position on what the rules for politics or society should be or what government should do. When we come to this letter to get a clear statement by Paul that all slaves in the first century Roman world should be declared free from their status as slaves, we will be disappointed. Instead of writing no longer a slave in verse 16, it's not what Paul wrote. Paul writes no longer as a slave. And reading what Paul had to say about this subject, we should do what we always should do. We should let Paul, by the Holy Spirit, set the agenda for what he is saying to Phil about the new relationship, the new status that Moose is now to have. Paul is writing by the Holy Spirit as a brother in Christ, not as a political philosopher whose job it is to outline the ideal political state of affairs. In this letter, Paul is focused on Moose's status and identity rather than making a statement about the Roman political and legal system in this first century world. Paul is about serving Christ in the first century Roman world, and his focus is to convince Phil and Moose of a reality that is far much more reaching, far more reaching than the politics of his time. Paul wants to convince them of the reality that had been created by God through Jesus Christ at the cross. They really are. They really are brothers in Christ. And there is no higher relationship they can have. Our Father, you're my brother, my sister. Today's reality, today, 21st century reality, involves legitimate concerns about numerous manifestations of very real discrimination against others on the basis of race, class, education, gender, host of other distinctions. Just as with Phil and Moose, there is no question that the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ is first of all what we're to live out. Today you and I need constantly to be reminded of this great truth and the primacy of the gospel message. We shouldn't ignore the truth that we have a higher calling a higher calling to focus on the gospel message and to go into the world, our world, your world. You know, we say go into the world. We all think, okay, I got to go to Africa. I got to go to South America. I got to go to the islands of the sea. Your world, our obligation, your obligation is to go into your world. I, my obligation is to go in my world, the world I live in every day with a higher calling. The gospel message demands far more from us than the reformation of government or politics. We may be called to be involved in government or politics, and I'm not putting that down. In fact, last night after I 
finished preparing, I started reading a book about um, Wil William Wilberforce. And uh, it was amazing what God accomplished through that man. And it was through his, it was clearly something God did supernaturally in Britain to abolish the slave trade first and then to abolish slavery in Great Britain. And we may be called, may be called to be involved in government or politics, but God must be of the, at the center of all we do. I was particularly struck by one sentence that David Powell wrote in his commentary on Philemon. He wrote, through the death of his son on the cross, this God is able to conquer the world through an utterly powerless act but one that challenges all powers and authorities. John Piper highlighted the centrality of the gospel when applied to slavery in a little article uh, he entitled How Paul Worked to Overcome Slavery. At the end of his article, he says, the upshot of all this is that without explicitly prohibiting slavery, Paul has pointed the church away from slavery because it is an institution which is incompatible with the way the gospel works in people's lives. Whether the slavery is economic, racial, sexual, mild, or brutal, Paul's way of dealing with Philemon works to undermine the institution across its various manifestations. To walk in step with the truth of the gospel is to walk away from slavery. I hope we can come away from our study of this little letter with ways to be living illustrations of the profound eternal effect that the gospel produces in our own lives, whether we're victims like Phil, whether we're perpetrators like Moose, or whether we're called to be reconcilers like Paul, that this little letter will instruct us. The other application point, I, the next application point I want us to understand is the power of weakness. And the point of this application is to remind us that God's power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Paul's little letter, even the way it was written, illustrates this paradox. Paul reminds Phil that he is a prisoner, that he is an old man, and that Moose is his own child. And instead of exercising apostolic authority, Paul appeals to Phil based on Phil's history of love for the church and of refreshing the saints. So by the very approach of this letter, Paul shifts the focus away from an individual thirst for freedom and towards freedom to serve in love. Paul doesn't give in to the temptation, one we all share, me particularly, to exercise his own power and authority so that Phil is made willing to give up his own power as Moose's owner. I hope you see that. That's an illustration of walking this life out in Christ in weakness. Again, uh, one of the commentaries that I've benefited greatly from is by David Powell. He writes it this way. This demonstration of a life that submits to weaknesses in turn becomes a powerful <coughs> argument for Philemon to give Onesimus his own life. As Paul is willing to give up his claim over Onesimus, verse 13, Philemon should do the same. As Paul resists exercising his will over others, verse 14, Philemon should do the same. As God is the sovereign one who stands behind the events that have transpired, verse 15, Philemon should also yield to God's sovereignty. 
Following the affirmation of that sovereignty and the willful submission to God's will, Paul launches the most powerful argument possible for Philemon to give up willfully his rights over Onesimus so that he too can serve God with his own will. And it's all for the kingdom of God. For what purpose have we been set free? What have we been set free from? What slavery were we formerly subject to? All of us were, you know. All of us were. Are we simply free for freedom's sake? These are all valid questions that demand answers. Individual answers. Answers you need to give for yourself. Unlike some prior generations, we don't face the same social, cultural, economic, and political issues of slavery. But Paul's little letter still finds us in situations in which we are offended. In situations in which we are the offender. In situations in which we have an opportunity to be reconcilers. All of us. How we respond to those situations can provide powerful opportunities to model gospel message illustrations to our families, to our co-workers, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. About freedom, A.W. Tozer has some pithy insights. Freedom is liberty within bounds, liberty to obey holy laws, liberty to keep the commandments of Christ, to serve mankind, to develop to the full all the latent possibilities within our redeemed natures. The ideal Christian who knows he is free to do as he will and wills to be a servant. This willingness to be a servant once again postures us appropriately. And it's only in this posture of weakness we can experience God's power. Have you found yourself yet in this story? As you do, let's learn from Paul the freedom that comes from humility and weakness. And it is when we find that we will find the image of Christ being perfected in us. Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving supernaturally for us this little 25 verses how in the world did this survive just a coincidence oh lord you know better our lives are not coincidence you called us for a purpose and that purpose is to love one another so that everybody can see we are yours reflecting your image for your glory Lord, may that be increasingly true of us, we ask in Jesus' name.